Good morning, everyone, again, and it's uh, my joy and honor to open God's Word with you as we look to Him together. So I'd invite you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our series through Mark's Gospel. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one near you in the pew there you can grab, or it'll be up on the screen as well. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. And I'm going to read verses 27 through 42. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 42. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we look to you together this morning. And as we open your word, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us by your spirit, through your word, and in your son, Jesus Christ. And may we be a people now who listen, that you would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and that you would grow in our hearts a faith to trust you, to take you at your word, and to follow you. And so use this time, we pray, in your word to to teach us, Lord to guide us and correct us, that we would be a people who worship you in truth and that we would be a people who respond in obedience and love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been going through Mark's gospel, following along with Jesus and his disciples on this journey to the cross, One of the things that stood out to me is that Jesus has been remarkably calm, cool, collected, and composed in spite of the fact that he knows exactly what's coming. 
He knows exactly what lies ahead for him. We've heard him predict several times exactly what's going to come about. His suffering, his rejection from religious leaders, he's going to be mocked, spit on, killed, and after three days rise again. And in the midst of all of those predictions, everybody around him is struggling. The disciples have a hard time understanding what's going on. They're confused as they're listening to all of this. They're upset. They're growing, as last week we read, they're growing sorrowful. And the religious leaders who are all around him, they're angry, they're jealous. Not Jesus. He continues to move forward, seemingly unshaken, by his current circumstances and in spite of his complete knowledge of his future circumstances. Last week, we looked at what's called the Last Supper, the occasion when Jesus observed the Passover meal with his disciples. And again, he gave another prediction to them. But this time, it was that one of his very own disciples would betray him. And still, we're not told of any inner turmoil for Jesus. We're not told of any emotional struggle that we might expect a result of one of your disciples, one of your closest followers betraying you. Jesus knows full well the suffering that lies in front of him, and he continues to move forward. And in this passage that we we just read that we're going to look at today, we've got another prediction And we find Jesus contemplating again what's about to happen to him in the hours and day ahead. But this time, this time it's different. This time we're given a window into his emotions. And it's very deep. It's very raw. And what we find is Jesus, our Savior, in agonizing pain in this passage. And so that's where we want to focus. We want to really zero in on the emotions that Jesus was feeling and ask, one, what caused him such great distress? And two, why was that necessary? So first, let's kind of recap what what happens here. So Jesus and his disciples, they finish having this Passover meal together. They leave the home that they're in and it tells us they go out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus then turns to them. And he gives, as I said, this prediction, you will all fall away, he tells them. Jesus has been telling them what's going to happen to him with his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. But now he tells his disciples what's going to happen to them over the next few hours. He says that as as he, the shepherd, is struck, is killed, they, the sheep, are going to be scattered that they're going to fall away, that these men, the closest of his followers, are going to turn their back on him. And Peter, as the passionate extrovert that he has demonstrated himself to be, he responds without hesitation, not me. These other jokers, they may fall away, but not me. I will not. Now, you've got to imagine there's probably a few internal processors in that group like me who are thinking to themselves like, wait, what? What did he just say? I mean, we just had dinner together and he said that one of us was going to betray him and I didn't make that cut. I thought I was good. Now he's saying, you're all going to fall away? And did Peter just throw us under the bus? I mean, there, was no, there were no buses. So did Peter just throw us under the cart? Did we just get trampled on? Like, what just happened? 
And Jesus tells Peter, it's, it's true. It's very true, he says. In fact, this night, before this night is even over, you're going to deny me, not once, but three times. And then Peter says, emphatically, the scriptures say, emphatically, he responds to Jesus that he's willing to die. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, he says. And so from there, Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells eight of the disciples, I want you to wait here. And he goes further into the garden, it tells us, with Peter and James and John, with those three disciples, to pray. And now we're told that Jesus began, it says in verse 33, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He's not feeling a little uneasy about what's about to happen. He's not just got some butterflies in his stomach. No, it says he's greatly distressed and troubled. The sorrow is so overwhelming, he says, that it feels like it could kill him. And then he tells, at that moment, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who are still with him, at at that point he says, stay here and watch And he goes further into the garden. He falls onto the ground, it says, and he begins to pray. And Mark's recorded these words of his prayer. Peter was close enough where he was able to hear these words that Jesus prayed. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He cries out those words to his father. Then he returns to Peter, James, and John. And what does he find? He finds them sleeping. And so he wakes them up. He tells them, again, keep watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Then a second time, he goes back to where he was. And and it says he prays the very same words. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he goes back to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. And so he wakes them up again. And what we see is the prediction that Jesus gave about them falling away, that that's seeming like more of a possibility, right? As they're struggling simply to stay awake and do what Jesus asks. So finally, a third time, he goes back. And I think it's safe to assume, we're meant to infer here that he prayed the same thing again, remove this cup, yet not what I will, God, but what you will. Let your will be done. And then finally a third time he goes to the disciples, finds them sleeping, wakes them up, and he says, okay, it is time, the hour's here, let's go. And then he says, the son of man, I am about to be betrayed. And so as, as we look and focus here on this moment of Jesus' intense suffering, what's described for us as these very painful emotions, we asked the question, what caused him such great distress and why was it necessary? And I think the answers come in a couple of themes that we've seen throughout the book of Mark that now we see here again in this passage. And the first one, the first theme we've seen consistently is that the suffering of Jesus was ordained by God the Father. That his suffering that night, his coming suffering on the cross, all that he would endure was ordained by God the Father. We see clearly that God is in complete control of all of the events surrounding 
the suffering and death of his son. How do we know this? Again, consider all of those predictions leading up to this one where Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. And yet now another prediction. He has predicted every step of his journey to the cross. He was never surprised. Jesus was never caught off guard by anything that took place. He says, you will all fall away for it is written. All of this was already known and planned in the mind of God. He prays to God, all things are possible for you. Why does he utter those words? Because he believes, he knows that God is in control. Even in the midst of what appears to be chaos. What for you and I would be absolute chaos. He turns to his father and says, all things are possible for you. Because he knows that God is in control and he has ordained every step of this journey. He prays to him, not what I will, but what you will. In other words, the hour that's coming and the cup that Jesus says he's going to drink, that those are by God's design. That the events that are going to unfold occur because it is God's will. God's the one who's in charge here. Not his betrayers. Not his enemies. And so it leads us to the conclusion that the suffering and death of Jesus was certainly not by accident. It certainly was not a defeat No, it was the fulfillment of God's purpose and plan. Therefore, we could say it even stronger, God is the ultimate cause of the death of Jesus. Jesus refers here to Zechariah chapter 13 when he says, where that passage says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In that analogy, the shepherd is Jesus. The sheep are the disciples, so who's the one who strikes the shepherd? Right? It's God speaking in that passage in Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd. So we ask the question, who is responsible for the suffering of Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Was it the Jewish leaders? Well, they were jealous of Jesus, tells us. So there's motive. They were so angry with him that they had been putting together a plan to have him executed. So yes, the Jewish leaders bear responsibility for the death of Jesus. Was it the Roman government and the soldiers who actually carried out the execution? Yes, they bear responsibility for the death of Jesus. Was it us? I mean, since his death was the payment for our sins, yes, we bear responsibility for the death of Jesus, but ultimately... The ultimate cause of Jesus' suffering and death is God the Father. See, when Jesus prays this prayer, he doesn't ask God to save him from what these evil people are about to do. He's not fearful of them. At no point has he demonstrated fear of man. And so he's not asking God to rescue him from evil people from the devil, from his enemy. And when he prays, he asks God if there's another way for God to carry out his plan, his will. And rightly so, this should shock us a little bit. And some have found this concept greatly difficult, I think, to comprehend and to wrap their minds around to the point where it's caused some to even deny the fact that God is a God of judgment and wrath. 
that there is punishment for our sin that we as a people, it's because of our sins that Jesus went to the cross. I mean, some will say that that's just a twisted story for God the Father to punish his son like that for something he never did. That that makes God the author of a terribly unjust system. Or it often sounds like this, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. I don't like the idea of the judgment of God. I I want to worship a God who is love and not wrath. And this is nothing new. To be honest with you, as we look throughout church history, we see the same thing showing up over and over and over again, though it may find new manifestations in our culture today where we deny the depth of our sinfulness and the corresponding and deserved wrath of God. It was over a thousand years ago that a man named Peter Abelard introduced what's become known as the moral atonement theory. He said that the aim of Jesus was not to satisfy the wrath of God, but to stimulate in us a love for God. This is over a thousand years ago. He said that the love of God displayed in giving up his son was designed to kindle in our hearts a corresponding love and repentance which then become the grounds for the forgiveness of our sins. Thus, he said the aim of Jesus was not to satisfy the wrath of God, but to just stimulate in his followers a love for him. And we could say in response to that, that if if God is loving which he is. God is good, which he is. And if God is just, which he is, then he must also get angry at evil. And the reality is we we want that. We want justice. We don't want the guilty to go unpunished, especially if somebody has sinned against us or oftentimes worse yet, a, a family member, a loved one, a child, if there's an injustice, we want them brought to justice. And so if God is so just and loving and good, then we want him to get angry and to do something about evil. Tim Keller states that if you don't believe in the God of wrath, then you really have no idea of your value to him. He says that a God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer like this. A God without wrath has no need to experience such incredible agony and to die in order to save us. And he gives this illustration. Imagine on this side, you have a God who paid nothing in order to save you. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to agonize. He didn't have to endure what he did to save you. Imagine you have that God on one side. How do you know how much this God loves you? How do you know how valuable you are to this God? You don't, because his love is simply a concept to you. There's no proof, there's no evidence. But on this side, you have the God of the Bible. And because he's angry at the evil and sin in the world, he's willing to do something about it and go to the cross and pay for it and suffer this immense torment that we read about in this passage. How valuable are you to that God? How do you know that he loves you? Because he's willing to go to the depth of this suffering on your behalf. Because he's willing to experience the deep distress and pain all the way to his death that's coming. And so the suffering and death of Jesus that we read about was, yes, a punishment by God for sin 
that Jesus didn't commit. It was punishment by God for our sin and rebellion. So what caused him such great distress? Well, let's say it wasn't the wrath of God. Then what caused him such great distress? Was it the pain of being rejected by men? Is that why he's experiencing such great turmoil and distress? If not the wrath of God, was it because he's been rejected by one of his disciples? He's been betrayed and he knows that the rest are going to fall away. Was it because he's been rejected by the religious leaders of the day? Because at every corner they've been trying to trap him and undermine him and prove him to be a fraud and plan his death? No. Because at every turn we've seen Jesus avoid their traps and turn them away without being distressed, without being overwhelmed. He doesn't fear man, as I often do, as perhaps you do. Where we, I think, would be greatly distressed if our closest followers we knew were going to have nothing to do with us. If people in authority of the day were out to get us and prove us to be something that we're not when we're really innocent, I gotta think at some point you and I would fold under that pressure. We'd be greatly distressed, but that's not what causes him such pain. If it wasn't the wrath of God, was it the physical pain? No. It's not the physical pain that he would endure that caused him to be so distressed in this moment. I mean, that certainly, the physical pain would cause you and I, I think, great distress. I mean, just this week, we read about in Skinny Atlas, a fugitive on the loose, and the police chief, when they finally caught him, said the whole community breathed a sigh of relief. Right? It's the, the idea that this man might possibly hurt me or a loved one that caused an entire community to be deeply troubled. Right? The, the possibility of physical pain. Right? We read about, again, multiple shootings within our own city, within our, our own neighborhood in Eastwood, which typically isn't known for gun violence. We read about shootings this past week, and the thought of potential pain being brought to us causes us great distress. We've read all summer about the overwhelming population of ticks, which causes our family great distress at the thought of our children going outside and some microscopic bug that you can't even see embedding himself in them and then giving them a, it's just, it causes us great distress, the thought of physical pain. But it wasn't the physical pain. Look at what Jesus asks when he prays. After saying he's so distressed, he's so sorrowful, he asks his father, to remove the cup. It's that cup that brought about such deep sorrow. And in the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for what? For the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, for example, God speaks about the cup, he says, that made you stagger, the bowl of my wrath. See, as Jesus thinks about the cup that he's going to drink, this metaphorical cup, as he looks into that cup, what is it that caused him such great distress? What he sees is a cup that's full of sin. You can imagine all that you've ever thought, all that you've ever done in that cup. And how poisonous and awful and smelly and overwhelming that would be if you had to just dwell upon everything that you've done in your own lifetime. And think about all of us combined. 
Think about the entire world as he looks upon a cup full of the idolatry. God's people turning to other gods. The adultery. As he thinks about the lying and the coveting and the pride of the entire world, the hatred of mankind towards one another, all of the injustices that have been committed by man against one another and against God, that's the cup full of sin that Jesus has this foretaste, this preview that he's going to drink. And as a result, it's a cup full of wrath because he's going to bear our sin, because he's going to drink that cup It's a cup full of God's punishment, God's justice for our sin, that he would become then the object of God's wrath, God's punishment that we deserve because of all that we've said, thought, done in rebellion against God. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that he became sin who knew no sin. Galatians 3 said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. When mankind fell, we became under the curse of God, separated from him and condemned because of our sin. But Jesus takes that curse upon himself and so he's distressed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, it says we're waiting for, for Jesus. We're waiting for him to, to return the one that rised from the dead, the one who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Jesus, it says, the scriptures say, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, is the one who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. He knew in that moment that he was about to drink a cup full of the wrath of God. He began to have this foretaste of it and it brought him great distress. And so we know that God, his wrath is the ultimate cause of Jesus' suffering and death. But it's our redemption. That's the reason for that. Jesus endures this struggle there in that garden alone as the disciples are sleeping. Which highlights the second theme from Mark's gospel. That all along the way we've seen the disciples struggle to understand the cross and follow Jesus. And their, their weakness, their failure has been a consistent fixture throughout this journey, throughout this gospel. And it comes to a climax here. When even though Jesus told them plainly that he would suffer and be killed and rise again, they didn't understand. Even though he called them to sacrifice their lives just as he would and, and to serve others just as he would, they struggled with pride. They wanted to have a position in his kingdom. And he says, they'll all fall away. Peter, if it's just, even if it's just me here, he says, I won't fall away. And he responds the second time, I'll die with you. I'm not going anywhere, Jesus. And so you have in the garden here this stark contrast between Jesus and his disciples. That he's struggling, he's deeply sorrowful, and they're asleep. He asks them to keep watch and to pray, and they can't keep their eyes open. Jesus here is faithful and noble under intense pressure and they're unfaithful and weak. But even in that prediction, when he says you will all fall away, notice the encouragement that they're going to be reunited and restored. He says, you all fall away, 
For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There was a promise that they'd be reunited, that they'd be regathered together with Jesus. That they'd be scattered, yes, but they'd be back with him again in Galilee. And we'll read about this later in Mark 16 where the angel tells the two women who who go to Jesus' tomb, they say, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee just as he told you. And so it shows us As tough as it is to watch these men abandon Jesus, I think it's important for us because it shows us that they weren't worthy of being his followers. And the truth is, neither are we. I mean, we'd like to think that we would stay awake that night. We'd like to think that we would be there praying. Man, Jesus told me to pray. I'm going to pray. We like to sing and make promises declaring Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. I mean, we like to declare those promises. And I think our intentions are good. But it's why it's so important that we have the truth here and this this struggle that's revealed in the disciples. It reminds us, right, that this Christian faith, that the calling to follow Jesus is for sinners. He didn't pick them because they would endure with him to the end. He didn't pick them because everybody else was going to abandon him and turn on him and betray him. No, they fall away too. And it's so good and so important for us to recognize and to see the reason this is described in the scriptures, the reason we have these outbursts from Peter. So that when we make declarations, when we make promises, yes, Lord, I will follow. We recognize that we are completely dependent upon him. It's not in our strength It's not in our own resolve, in our own will, that we say, yes, I can do this. It's in humility and dependence upon his spirit that we say, Lord, help me to follow you. I see your beauty. I behold your glory. I see how worthy and valuable you are. Help me to follow you and to set aside my own desires, my own plans. Help me. And so Jesus ends up going through this alone on their behalf and on ours. In the midst of this agony and pain, he submits to the will of his Father, his plan to bring about salvation. Three times he prays this prayer, not what I will, but you will. Three times he submits himself to the will of his Father. He had declared, it's recorded for us in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's why he came, to carry out God's plan, and here he is doing it. And so why was it necessary for him to endure such great distress, so much suffering? Well, Jesus, we see in this passage, obediently submits to the will of God by taking upon himself our sin and the judgment that we deserve. Our sin and the punishment that it deserves are an enormous burden. If you think about, again, the sin in in our own lives, and it's uncomfortable, and we don't want to admit it, sometimes we just prefer to flat out deny it, but it If you think about your own thoughts and your own intentions and your own desires 
and your pride begins to come to the surface and we're willing to be honest, that is an overwhelming burden that we're not exactly sure what to do with and we don't always know how to handle. And that is why Jesus here is so sorrowful because our sin and the punishment that it deserves, yes, it creates an overwhelming burden. And so we can't read this passage honestly and say that our sin isn't a big deal. That everybody's basically good. Everybody's basically okay. I'm not as bad as the other guy. You can't possibly read this passage and contemplate the distress that Jesus is experiencing and say, my sin's not a big deal. Likewise, you can't read this passage honestly and contemplate the distress and turmoil of Jesus and determine that the judgment or the wrath of God is not real or is not a big deal or isn't something you should be concerned about when you look at the burden that it creates for Jesus. He is agonizing over that cup full of our sin and God's wrath and he willingly drinks that cup for us. In the midst of his suffering, he obeys because he loves his father and because he loves us. And this is where it gets good. But yeah, it's tough to talk about the wrath of God. And I know that many have this perception of church and of preachers that that's all we want to do is focus on the wrath of God and make people feel guilty. But we can't afford to downplay our sin and to deny God's wrath. Here's, here's why. Is the emotion and, and the suffering that Jesus experienced, that's because of, of our sin and because of the judgment that our sin deserves. And what we see is Jesus loving into that suffering with a sacrificial love that's deeper than anything we've experienced. It is so deep that it's intended to transform us now and for eternity. There's great commentary on this passage in Hebrews chapter 5, where the writer says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It's talking about this very moment, this very passage that we just read about, that Jesus is offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And get this, it says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If we deny our sin, if we deny the wrath of God, then you have to deny the suffering of Jesus. You have to deny the torment that he was feeling in that moment. And if you deny his suffering, then you deny the source of eternal salvation. See, his love is a love so wide and so high and so deep that it is alone the source of eternal salvation. It's the type of love that you and I deeply long for. It's the type of love that you and I so desperately need. And it is the type of love that will only 
satisfy our souls. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our Savior Jesus who was willing to suffer and experience such great agony and pain because of our sin and your wrath. God, at times it's hard to understand and it's uncomfortable to think about you as a God who's both loving and just, as a God who is good and yet has such terrible wrath. And yet, God, my prayer is that we would be honest about who you are, that as we examine, as we contemplate all that Jesus did, it would remind us of all that he has done for us, of all that he suffered on our behalf. That yes, you are a God of wrath, but it only magnifies your love that much more when we see what you are willing to experience, that you took upon your son our wrath, our judgment. God, how loving you are. We declare that together as your people, that your love is so wide and so high and so deep because you were willing to endure that for us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.